0: Welcome to Q-Talks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Tele.
1: And I'm Shreya, and we're your hosts for Q-Talks, a series for aspiring innovators, in which we talk about the typical and not-so-typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world.
0: This week on Q-Talks, we are talking to Richard Lucas, a business and social entrepreneur, as well as an early stage investor. He's also heavily involved in teaching entrepreneurship and in communities which promote entrepreneurship like Cam Entrepreneurs and other non-profit initiatives like TEDx Kazimierz. Hi Richard, thanks for coming on the show with us. So to start off, could you just give us a bit of your background and how you got into entrepreneurship and investing?
2: Hi, I'm Richard Vickers. I'm an entrepreneur with companies in the United States, the UK, Poland, and a small one in Asia. Um, my background is I came from I came from Oxford, moved to Cambridge in 1985, where I read economics. After I graduated, I set up a business which didn't work out and then had a job in consulting, which got me to Poland in 1989 for the first time and I didn't enjoy the consulting job as much as I thought I was going to um, so I was looking for a change and got myself in a startup business school in uh, 1991 where I was teaching how to start your own business courses. After about a few weeks I went into business with some Polish entrepreneurs who were engineers I had a technical I didn't have a technical background I was an economist. And I think uh, that got me into technical businesses and that's basically where I've been ever since.
1: So I'm interested to know, maybe you can give us an idea of some of the startups that you have worked with and also how do you balance working with multiple different startups and investing in multiple different startups?
2: Okay, well, I think the first thing I'd say is that in, in one sense, all businesses are startups when they begin. And these days, For some people, startup as a sort of American Silicon Valley concept means a a scalable internet business, which is disruptive and game-changing and awesome, financed by external capital. And that's not—that's a subset of entrepreneurship, but it's very much not the not the whole thing. So when I talk about getting involved in a startup, I basically mean getting involved in the business, and it's really been opportunistic and a journey. When I started investing in. Businesses other than the one of which I was effectively a co founder. I didn't know the term angel investing, and many of the things I did back then wouldn't stand the test of a sort of Ladybird book of angel investing. It was a sort of, I was fairly amateurish because despite having a degree in economics from Cambridge and having done economics, I, I had very little business education and other than my own my own efforts at entrepreneurship since I was a child. Um, in terms of how I manage, the second half of your question, how I manage being involved in so many different things, I basically I was only CEO of, or managing director of one company at a time. I've been twice the managing director of a company called SKK, which was doing systems integration based on barcodes. And once the CEO of a company called PMR, which was an uh, abbreviation for Polish Market Review, which was doing business information about Poland and the rest of the time. And today I'm not in the management board of any business. So the way I manage it is by not managing it, that someone else is in charge. And that's a very important lesson to learn for anyone interested in entrepreneurship is figuring out who's in charge. And if it's not you, then who is? And if it is you reckoning that you can't really do be in charge of multiple things at the same time, because you'll lose focus.
1: So to set the scene for our listeners, what are you juggling today on a day-to-day basis?
2: <laughs> it's an interesting question. I've, I've literally last week I've communicated a decision I took a few months ago not to continue running TEDx Kashmir. For those of you, I'm sure many of your listeners, most of the listeners are familiar with TED Talks, and around the world there's a network of people called. TEDxers who organize TED-like events for their local community and I've been involved in that for since 2009 so we're recording this in 2020 so that's 11 years and that's partly to free up time for some new things that I want to do and I suppose I could put my activities into several buckets that one of them is supporting in as far as it's needed the companies in which I'm a shareholder. So, for example, in the last five hours, I attended a Monday morning meeting online, really more as an observer than actively contributing for an automated material handling systems company. I'm a shareholder in which is called ISL. And then later this morning, I went for a walk with my American business partner, Kimon Fontekidis, who's also a friend. And, you know, we, it, there wasn't any specific issue, but we, we uh, majority shareholders together, him being by far the major majority, me being a significant minority shareholder in a company called Argos Multilingual, which is top fifty in the world in translation, and we're also controlling shareholders in the company PMR, which I used to I used to run. So, in terms of juggling, I, I don't exactly see that as juggling. There's just, there, there are groups where there are some companies where my shareholding is less than 1% where I really am an angel investor in the classic sense of the word. And one way of looking at that is that the company doesn't depend on me and I don't depend on the company. That if I had a heart attack and died right now, the company would be able to go on without me. And if the company went bust today, I would be able to go on without it. So it's a, it's a I take it seriously. It's important, but it's not critical. And then there's six companies where, I'm a significant shareholder. I've got more than ten percent of the shareholder, which is a bigger share than is normal for an angel investor unless it's a lead angel investor. and then then you know I'm in touch on a sort of as needed business in some cases it's a it's a sort of once a month board meeting and follow up between them uh, and, and it's very, very hard to describe it in terms of a job description other than helping out where needed what's quite striking is that often you get involved in situations that are very difficult or important that it might be a senior executive hire and you're coming in for you know a job interview where you're looking to appoint a new member of the senior management team or it might be it might be restructuring and you know cost reductions where you're having to take tough decisions or an acquisition or, you know, some major act of, you know, unprofessional behavior or something like that. So it can be quite difficult things or capital raising or things like that. And so that's on the business side. On the nonprofit side, I, apart from the TEDx, I'm involved in a number of initiatives, one of which will be of relevance to Qtech and people interested in the Cam- Cam- Cambridge entrepreneurship space that five years ago I founded something called CAM Entrepreneurs, which is to support business and social entrepreneurship among cambridge university alumni current students and others and uh that's going well we've done meetings all over the world and i i I feel that this is something i can devote more time to and there are a number of other pro entrepreneurship things i'm connected to that i'm helping out with and that's also on a slightly ad hoc basis i've also recently invested in a podcasting business called the new books network which is a big scale podcast it's run in america we're doing 1.4 million or 1.5 million people download podcasts from MBN every month. And I'm going to be launching a an entrepreneurship and leadership channel next year. So I'm doing a lot of work preparing for that. And I have had a podcast of my own called Project Cashmere in the past for getting on for five or six years now. And one of the reasons I want to move it over to NBN is because I want more people to listen. And I'm sure there are other things I'm doing, but perhaps that's enough That's
0: enough for now. Wow, that's a very impressive range of things. Now, if we could kind of sort of unpack that and look at angel investing first, I was just wondering what exactly do you look for when investing in a company and how does it compare to something like VC? Because obviously for VC, there's a very detailed due diligence process, whereas with angel investing, you're sort of on your own. So how do you convince yourself Um, that the investment is worth it? And, and, you know, what sectors are you interested in?
2: It's a a good question. And there are many very well-written, straightforward answers that anyone listening to this can find. If they just Google, you know, what are the criteria of an angel investor? There's always a a personal tinge. And I think what's, you know, over the years, I've made many mistakes, as well as the companies that I'm a shareholder in, which are still active and, trading I've started many ventures which have failed from since I was you know eight or nine years old so I I'm not coming to this as a someone who's not been an entrepreneur and I take the value of money seriously mm-hmm. however I think a journey that many people go on is that when they have their first business success there's a saying in Polish which is that Um, success has many fathers and failure is an orphan that when things go well, there are a lot of people wanting to take the credit for it. When things go badly, a lot of people run away. And sometimes when people have the business that does well and makes them quite a bit of money, they attribute that to their talent and their good business judgment and are slightly less demanding in terms of what they expect of other ventures than they later become, which is a long-winded way of saying that I made some quite bad mistakes investing doing angel investment once i i started doing that at at scale to such an extent that i had to stop doing it at scale because if i'd carried on i had to run out of money and i i think that the um there's a lot of bullshit in the startup community where inexperienced investors deploy other people's capital uh into the into companies run by inexperienced founders and although you know part of a a startup is the idea and the charisma and motivation of the team there is so much more to it than that particularly to do with the market and the interpersonal skills and the management skills and the determination of the team that also can that I'm very much looking for those things and the, the expression easy come, easy go is, absolute, is true in spades and startups. So I, 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 I'm very careful of people who seem to think that it's either fake it till you make it, walk the talk, who are exaggerating, underestimating the difficulties, exuding what I look for, I would describe as fake, fake confidence. So I'm often telling people who are trying to raise money, you know, don't exaggerate. You know, over-deliver, under-promise. If you're not sure, say say you're not sure if you've only got one client, get it out in the open we've only got one client. If you've got no clients, are you sure it's a good idea to be raising money? The classic things are obviously the people, you know, are the, are the is the person or are the people leading the idea, the sort of people I trust and are convinced that they're going to treat the money that comes from investors as if it were their own? Are they... Are they good at talking to clients? And I, I always say of every business proposal, and I've, I've written a blog post about this, I can share for your show notes are called Tough Questions from a Potential Investor. I always say it doesn't really matter what you think about your idea. It doesn't matter what I think about your idea. The only judgment that ultimately matters is that of the users or the clients and the market. So the voice of the potential users and clients is way more important than anyone, anyone else's. And quite often I'm looking for lack of privilege, the school of hard knocks that obviously in a place like Cambridge, quite a lot of people come from affluent backgrounds and uh, privileged backgrounds, intellectually privileged, if not materially privileged. And if there's any sign of people having done things that are really hard or not having had too easy a life up to then, that's a kind of plus because it suggests that they're not of people who take success for granted.
1: Fantastic. Um, I think that article uh, will be really uh, interesting for our listeners so we'll definitely include that in the notes. I'm interested to know what are your thoughts on super angels or this term super angels and I guess more specifically the idea that angel investors can predict the success of a venture compared to let's say the investments done by a VC. To what extent do you think that angel investors make the right decisions compared to VC firms?
2: I would say that any angel investor who claims that they can do a better job than other people you should walk away from, that everyone who's experienced knows that it's almost impossible to say. It it can't be possible to tell beforehand who's going to succeed and fail. And that's partly because inevitably a business is always innovating to some degree. And if you're doing things that haven't been done before, how the hell do you know what's going to happen? Um, I'm a, a good friend, and I've invested in three companies together with Peter Cowley, who was Angel Investor of the Year, Chairman of the Cambridge Angels, President of the European Business Angels Network, who's invested in uh, 50 to 60 companies at least. That I—that's I, no—it's around that number on his website. We can share that, with Peter cowley.org or or .com, I think it's .org, Uh, he says that when he makes an angel investment, the first thing he does is psychologically imagines that the company's gone bust. He treats it as him having lost the money. And, you know, angel angel investors are just like all other people. They're fallible. And to the extent they're investing their own money, to the extent that quite a lot of them are entrepreneurs who might bring more than money, you, you can make the case that Perhaps they'll be better at it, but equally, equally, maybe they don't have the rigor, and it's not their livelihood. And someone who's working in a VC or private equity fund, you know, it's their job, so they've they've, they've got to do it properly. So I, I wouldn't put angel investors up on a pedestal at all. I, I am a shareholder in a a, a platform for uh, investors called Syndicate Room, which was founded in Cambridge and. That is a platform through which companies raise money, and they've got an interesting approach to fundraising in the sense that they'd like to have a lead investor, at least they used to, where one of the angels has to be putting in a quarter of the money. So, you know, it's simple, massive, simple—if someone's raising three hundred thousand pounds, then at least seventy-five thousand has to come from one one individual, or I think they can have funds as well. But that means there's someone in the room who really cares and represents the investors. And one of the problems with the sort of crowdfunding type approach, like CrowdQ, if if you've got 100 investors who put 5,000 pounds in each, then there's no one individual who is massively exposed and is going to put more effort in than, or is unlikely to put more effort in and you get that prisoner's dilemma problem, that the the best outcome, you know, why should one person Go the extra mile when their is no bigger than anyone else's. So I th- I think angels, are, you know, angels are fallible, just like funds are fallible, just like entrepreneurs are fallible. I mean, sometimes people don't need a, they don't need an angel, they don't need a external funding because their current business model gen- generates enough cash to expand, and they still screw it up. So, and you know, most businesses fail. That that's the other thing that you know there isn't a, there isn't a tried and tested method to creating a successful business at all.
1: Mm. So we've actually had um, Tom Britton, one of the founders of Syndicate Room, as an early guest on this podcast. Um, so if people are interested to know more about Syndicate Room, um, that's a certainly a good uh, episode to to go back and listen to. So just to follow up quickly, so would you say that you therefore do angel investing for the thrill of it? Um, and if so, what, what do you... Recommend to people who are interested in getting into investing.
2: I don't think I did it for the thrill of it. It's, it's. I, but then I, I, didn't start my own company for the thrill of it. It's possibly, and it's, it's a good question. And you know, it's a great question for everyone to ask themselves: is why do they do what they do? And I think when I, when I was building my first business in the 1990s, I, I had different vision of what I was trying to achieve to what I later wanted. I'm very old school with respect to making money that a lot of funded startups these days have the characteristic that the investors are expecting it to lose money. Any revenue that comes in will be reinvested. If you run out of money, you have another founding round with the hope of an exit where either a greater fool or someone with deeper pockets comes along and buys you out later, which uh, wasn't the luxury we had. I mean, this was my my main source of livelihood, I'd given up a consulting job in the UK. And, you know, this was what I was devoting my life to back in the 1990s. And when I invested in other businesses, I think I was, I was very much opportunistic that, and I think that one of my characteristics I've noticed in myself that I haven't so often seen in other people is that I debundle the execution from the idea that the classic model is you have the entrepreneur with the idea, pitching people with money for the for the for the investment and then they go and they organize a team and they go off and do it and you know i've got a couple of cases where i've i've got the idea i've potentially got the funding but i don't have the entrepreneur and you know i one of i'm very interested in artificial lab grown meat and i'm was talking to someone who's involved in precision in fermentation in breweries and I, i was chatting about precision fermentation which is one of the technologies that's used for lab grown meat and he said, Well I don't know about that, but I know someone who do who does, and I'm having a conversation with her tomorrow about that. And the, the where I am now in my life, I'm 50, 54 years old and I'm trying to reduce the number of things I do to things that I really want to do. So I've I've exited several several smaller businesses in the last Twelve or since the beginning of this year, because I want to have more time to focus on things that I I want to do, and lab grown meat seems to be part of saving potentially saving the planet. So it's what the business does which attracts me. It has to make money and be profitable, and I don't have a business yet. I just want to chat to someone who's in that sector. So I'm, I, it's not the thrill. It's not. Um, it's just I see the opportunity, and very often the opportunity arises out of out of meeting people that I. You know, if I if I meet someone new, I obviously you go through the standard sort of initial, you know, I don't know, like dogs dog sniffing each other or or shaking hands. You sort of get to know what each other does, and you know, i it, it's very unconsciously I think. Well, what's the what's the best thing I could do together with this person? And it might be you know play a game of chess, but it might be you know they work in a big company and I ask if they enjoy it, and they say they're a bit frustrated. Then I say, well, have you ever thought of starting a bi- starting a business? And you know, we explore whether there might be something I could I could do with that because you know I've, I've got ideas in in hard seltzers, in precision lab grown meat, but I don't have I don't have a team, and I'm not looking to run it myself. So I really am always on the lookout for for entrepreneurs. On my LinkedIn profile, there's a questionnaire, a form a link to a Google form where People where it says, "Do you want to work with me?" and it, it takes a bit of background information. Um, someone who was at Judge Business School filled in that form, and after our initial conversation, I said, "You're almost more, you're you're more successful than I am, Chris." And he's now CEO of a company that I invested in, which is doing extremely well. Um, I, I didn't invest that much; it wasn't a huge investment for me, but it it was you know the case that I'm looking for the entrepreneur. I sometimes I've got the idea. Uh, and why am I doing it? I'm In principle, I'm not meant to be investing in new things, but I do have rather limited self-control. So despite the fact that I have formally decided I'm not investing in new things, I do have a couple of things on my radar at the moment that I will invest in. But my rule now is I'll only invest if I really want to be in that specific business. So you know, I have no desire to be in, I don't know, real estate funds. So I'm probably not going to invest in that even if it's a great business idea.
0: Richard, I think the point there about, you know, the importance of finding people and networks also ties in very interestingly to your work with teaching entrepreneurship and building these non-profit networks um, such as Car Entrepreneurs and TEDx. So I think maybe if we could talk a bit about that now. So in terms of teaching entrepreneurship, you know, in a university setting, what's your approach to that? How do you go about that? And what value do you think, learning about entrepreneurship in the classroom setting has compared with uh, mentorship for example
2: I'd say that teaching and mentorship are part of the same spectrum although teaching in the traditional context is usually to a curriculum set by set by someone else and maybe I'll take a step back the reason one of the reasons I've been active in supporting entrepreneurship education goes back to the fact of, that there was a tremendous lack of it when I was a student and when I was a school and you know having had my first business when I was seven or eight years old I was very much starved of any kind of role model or inputs or anyone giving me any advice at all and I I sometimes speculate what my life might have been like if there was someone in my network of family and family friends who could have given me a bit of guidance because I had many some good ideas but many very bad ones and no one to tell me <laughs> tell me have you thought of this or that so it's very expensive to learn by doing and so when I came to when I came to Poland one of the projects I worked on was to try to introduce enterprise education into the Polish school curriculum and so in a sense I was working on something that I was lacking in my own life experience and in that in those days it was beginning to get a bit better in in Britain but it still wasn't as well developed as it is now. And I realized that it's quite remarkable, having gone through Winchester College, which is one of the most expensive private schools in the United Kingdom, so I think with a very strong and in some, a very good a reputation, a very good reputation, which in its academic area, I'd say is well, well deserved. And then Cambridge University, I didn't have a single hour of tuition on the things that are most important in business, despite having read been interested in economics from the age of 13 or 14. It's absolutely remarkable. And so I felt that in terms of what you can do as an entrepreneur is draw people's attention to the things that really matter, which you're not being taught. And, you know, for example, personal organisation and time management and curiosity and business sense. So I'd you know, I'd take, you know, I'd get the school kids in a Polish primary school to, you know, discuss the businesses dotted around the school, which would be the you know the local corner shop, as it were, and you know, what would it look like if it was run really badly? What would, and then so I have to make a checklist of you know all the features of a badly run business. And that obviously leads into the thinking of opposites and just uh, get in the habit anytime you walk into any business, be it a hotel, a cafe, a shop a sports club to think how does this work as a business you know is it well run what would you do if you were in charge how would it be different so it's a critical thinking understanding the way the world works and so so i talked about time management and interpersonal and people skills it is this and this is still a huge problem in the startup community that people don't realize that to make an organization work you need you need leadership and leadership is the the art of getting a group of people to work work willingly towards a common goal. And you don't get that from an Excel spreadsheet. And, uh, you know, you can see businesses with really good ideas and healthy business models, which you know are never going to make a big impact because of the abysmal, interpersonal skills of the leader and they're never going to be able to attract talented people to come and work in their team because the guy the guy often a guy sometimes a woman in charge is a bit of a shit and they're just not going to they're not going to motivate people to come and join them even if the salary and conditions are quite attractive so in terms of teaching entrepreneurship i i do more workshops than curriculum based work so for example at the judge business school there's a uh, two-year masters in entrepreneurship, and they have residential. Obviously, everything's impacted by COVID, but traditionally, they'd have residential uh, weeks where people who were studying remotely would come to Cambridge, and different people from different backgrounds would come and work on specific topics. And um, I'm going to be talking about management and leadership in in startups, and what I'm doing in a in a few days' time, and. I'm a big believer in project-based learning and practical education. So quite often I, I wouldn't be so arrogant to say it's like Harvard Business School and give them a case study, but you take them through real world problems. You, you know, one that I enjoyed doing with both adults and high schoolers is imagine you're in charge of a successful startup. You've got say 15 or 20 people and uh some guys from Google are going to come to visit you and you know that you're a potential acquisition target so it's incredibly important that the visit goes well and you're checking everything's neat and tidy and you, you're you just looking around the office before the guys from Google are around for this this key meeting or it could be a key client would be another another thing and a very important client or potential client that's coming to visit and you walk into the you check the toilets and it's very disgusting someone hasn't cleaned up after themselves you're the boss what are you going to do and you know, that's not a business problem in a sort of in the sense of its analytical strategy you know michael porter five forces or boston consulting group matrices but it's a real problem and it's remarkable how people need to be brought back to earth you get the most ridiculous ideas even from highly educated people about how to handle this blindingly obvious problem but it does draw people attention to business being an organization rather than run with people rather than a theoretical theoretical construct
0: if you could just give uh, a little more on mentorship and your thoughts?
2: Okay, so m- mentorship is, in one case, there's one CEO of one business, I'll I'll spare him the discourtesy of giving an example of which one, um, where he has described me as his mentor, and his initial uh, route into business together was he joined a company I was CEO of, and in a sense, was too ambitious for the structure of the company at the time. So intuitively, I, I felt that. And with hindsight, it was a big red flag for the culture of the company I was running that I don't like the idea these days of a company where if someone's too ambitious, you're looking for routes for development out of the organization. But but there are a number of complicated factors as to why that was the best decision. So, you know, he was... 15 years younger than me, maybe twelve years younger than me, and very ambitious. I sort of reminded him a bit like I had been at his age, if you know what I mean. And I I say sort of to some extent he reminded me of myself. And you know, he has built up a you know, it's a very successful company now. And I was sort of there along the way, sharing sharing experiences and advice. But that was a that was a business relationship just the the one that the challenge with mentoring is that it's very expensive in terms of time and people say you know find a mentor but the sort of people who have had the life experiences that might be relevant to you are likely to be busy because either people who have done interesting things and are doing interesting things are likely unlikely to want to stop in my experience. So it's not that someone like me can just sort of turn on a tap and generate an extra few hours a week to help an additional person. Uh, but I'd say mentoring is more reactive. I haven't Googled how to, you know, how to be a mentor, but, you know, if someone's got specific, obje- I'd say in a way it's a bit like a, a coach. It's centered around the agenda of the, the person who's being mentored, you know, what what are their challenges? What are they trying to do? And I've got a, an interesting experiment going on now with Magdalena, who is, um, I'm mentoring her and the agreement, the agreement we've got there is, and she approached me a few months ago and I said, well, I'm ready to put the time in if you are provided we publish the results. And so we're going to, and as of next year, which is now, we're going to each topic we cover should be not just for her benefit, but for other people that, Other people as well, on the basis that you know, if if I'm much more motivated to help her if it's not restricted to her, and it also makes it more transparent and means that the advice that I give can be subject to external scrutiny, and that's also important. I think you need a certain humility, both as a well as an investor or a advice giver or a mentor. You say, well, you know, I can advise, but it's your it's your life, and just because I think it's a good idea doesn't mean that I'm necessarily right. I'll share my ideas or feedback or things to think about, and but you have to take the decision. It's your responsibility. There's a difference between being a consultant and an executive. So, being a teacher of entrepreneurship, um, there's going to be an overlap, but mentoring sort of person-specific and context-specific context whereas I'd say in entrepreneurship teaching there are very much two types of entrepreneurship teaching. One is for people who've elected to take it where you know, it's like I mean, no one will be on an MBA program unless they want to be on the MBA program whereas there's also what I'd call gateway courses for entrepreneurship where there's something I'm considering doing with my my old public school which has just started a centre for entrepreneurship and innovation where I'm going to suggest to them they should have a gateway course of some description in entrepreneurship which might be quite short four to eight hours or something like that for people who aren't necessarily interested in entrepreneurship it's a sort of course for everyone like a taster the idea would be a bit like those sporting holidays where you have a, a lesson in a dozen different sports and then you can spend more time doing the one that you want to do on the basis that even if you don't want to be an entrepreneur the objective of the course is to help you understand why you don't want to be an entrepreneur but also help you understand the way businesses work because even if you're not an entrepreneur, you may well have to deal with them during your working life. And entrepreneurship is way too important to be ignorant of, even even if it's not you. It's
1: been very interesting to hear about the different entry points into entrepreneurship or the opportunities of educating people at different levels, as you've as you've been talking about. Um, so perhaps just one f- um, final question that we're quite interested in. Obviously, we're speaking to you from Cambridge. You're uh, based in Poland and have worked in various different places. So I'm interested to know what are maybe some of the surprising differences that you've seen uh, between the entrepreneurship um, that happens in Cambridge versus um, those that are happening in Poland?
2: That's interesting. I'm sure a, I mean, <clears throat> when I first came to Poland, it was just after the end of communism. And some people used to say here that my my privileged, relatively privileged British background didn't equip me to understand what business reality was like in different countries. And wherever you go in the world, there will be an army of consultants helping you explain the local – who want to explain the local culture to you. It doesn't matter whether it's Russia, Brazil, China – uh, Mozambique or Ireland, there will be people who say, "Oh, well, you have to understand the local culture." And understanding the local culture is important. Having said that, when I when I started teaching, and I, I was 24 in the business school in, in Krakow, in Poland, where I am now, I had 40 odd students, average age 40, and yet the first question through a translator because at that stage I didn't speak speak Polish. Whereas now I'm a Polish citizen and Pass the language test to become a citizen uh, and, and various other tests. And he, the, he said, well, uh, you know, how on earth do you think you've got anything of any relevance given your privileged background? And I said, what I said, and I believe to this day I'm correct about, it, is that you, know, you might, in you know, a communist system, might work to different rules, but in a market economy, it's always the three Ps, you know, product, people and process, the four Cs, competitions, clients costs and cash and maybe maybe strategy it doesn't matter where you are what you're doing business is always in fact I'll I'll give another story when I went into a Polish primary school to do a workshop this was the first ever global entrepreneurship week in Poland and I persuaded the school where my kids then were back in 2007-8 I persuaded the school director to let me do a workshop and she was a bit dubious but Good for her. She was open to the experiment, and I was quite nervous because giving a and my, and my Polish is quite good, but giving a talk to two hundred and fifty kids in Polish at age six to eight, when three of them are in the audience, of your own is your kids are that toughest audience you can possibly imagine. Uh, at some stage, you may discover that all of you, I, I imagine none of you have children. Um, yeah, but it's, it's, it's quite it was quite tense. So, just does anyone here? know what a business is and a little boy in the front row put his hand up so I said well what's your name and he said it's Jacob I said well Jacob I'm obviously translating what's a business he said well you know what sir a business is you have to make something or provide a service and you have to sell it for way more than the costs of doing whatever it is you're doing. And the most important thing is that the people have to like whatever it is you're doing so much that they don't think it's expensive. And the school directors, George, are sagged because she had that's a better definition than many, many adults can give for, for what a business is. And so I would I would say that the um, the universal truths about business really are universal. It's always about selling something at a higher cost than the cost of making it, keeping your customers happy, retaining, attracting and retaining talented people, uh, having some edge over your competitors so that people want to carry on doing business with you. Obviously, you can go to more detail about business model, repeat, repeat custom, lifetime value, financing, but the basics are universal. And What's in, that's what's in common? What I was very aware of and still am is the you know the relative privilege of coming from a, a country that has a, an uninterrupted sweep of the market economy going on for hundreds of years and the deep pools of capital, the, the solid infrastructure, the the institutions. Obviously, right now, institutions are taking a bit of a battering. Uh, without going into contemporary politics in the UK or the United States or other countries, there are many, many places where things that we've taken to, for granted are to do with respect for democracy, free and fair elections, the rule of law, and uh, so on, uh, uh, independent and free media are being challenged. But that lack of that background in Poland, on the one hand, I did, there was a historic background from pre, pre-communist pre era, but the sense of institutions being Shaky makes everyone a little less confident, which makes people perhaps a little more short-term. On the other hand, in the same way that immigrants are very often successful in business compared to locals, for example, in Germany, there's a much greater rate of entrepreneurship among immigrants into Germany than millions who've been admitted, in contrast to the um, nationalistic... Uh, anti-immigrant forces entrepreneurship uh, has been much fueled by Im- immigration because Im- immigrants have to, they don't have a choice and people coming out of them, quite often the reason there's a higher rate of growth in developing countries is because the alternative of a stable, well-paid job in a government institution doesn't exist. So the most talented people look for, look for their survival or prosperity in the private sector starting their starting their own things. I, I could go into more detail of the nuances of Polish culture, but I think in general, it's conditioned by adversity, which in some ways is a considerable advantage, but in others, might might make people less confident.
1: Hmm. I think that's a, a very interesting note to end on. I want to thank you for your time, Richard, and for your very interesting and excellent comments uh, in this discussion. So thank you very much for joining us on the show.
2: Oh, you're very welcome.
1: I think that was a really great discussion with Richard and there are so many points that we could pick up on. Um something that particularly stood out to me was in the discussion about angel investing when he said this phrase that that he would be able to go on without it being the startup and that it would be able to go on without him and I thought that was a very interesting distinction between perhaps angel investing and uh, VCs which involve larger sums of money and potentially larger amounts of involvement Um, so that's something that I particularly took out of it out of that discussion.
0: Yeah and for me I found it quite interesting when he was discussing teaching entrepreneurship um, and how the way he teaches entrepreneurship in workshop settings that more general instruction also has a place alongside more bespoke things like mentorship, which is more individualized.
1: Thanks very much again to Richard for joining us on Q Talks. This podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we'd also like to say a big thank you to the team at Q Tech, who have all been working hard behind the scenes.
0: Thank you very much for listening. And please do go ahead and rate us or leave a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts you can tweet us at, at qtech to suggest a guest or theme or tell us your experiences with applying technical skills at startups you'll also find us at qtech.io forward slash qtalks